Dave Monaco, the Alan Meyer family head of school at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. In this season's first episode with Dr. Rob Evans, we began our quest to understand human identity and the act of coming together in communities of belonging. Today, I'm pleased to share a conversation with a leading voice in how communities form, Charles Vogel. Charles's book, The Art of Community, Seven Principles for Belonging, offers insights into the characteristics of community and how one finds his or her place in one. In this conversation, we continue our early season quest to understand what belonging is, what it feels like, and how one finds it. I know you will enjoy learning from Charles. Charles Vogel, thank you for joining the From My Angle podcast. We're so glad to have you calling in today from California. Thanks for being here. It's exciting to participate. We're uh, thrilled to have this author and executive coach and speaker on the theme of community to help us continue tilling the soil in these early podcasts for this third season on what it means to build inclusive communities of belonging. So, Charles, you have a really fascinating background covering uh, Peace Corps, documentary filmmaking, labor organizing, uh, Yale lecturing, executive coach. Can you briefly just give us a little bit of the major influences that have drove you to study and research and speak about community building? Well, the through line of all the parts of my life that you've referenced are about my efforts to try to make a difference uh, with other people in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was a much younger man, I had to learn the hard way that I would not be successful trying to do things by myself or just thinking that cooperation would happen by accident. Right. So it was a hard, hard road to learn that I needed to get good at bringing people together around shared values and purpose Mm -hmm. in order to make any kind of difference that I aspired to participate in. And, um, uh, I failed at that while I was Peace Corps volunteer. Some of the work was successful, but I mostly ran around frustrated. And then when I was a labor organizer, obviously um, inviting people to participate in something when there were people that uh, could create problems for them, I had to learn how to build trust and invite people in authentically. And then Dr. Filmmaking is a collaborative project and we never had enough resources to create w- what we wanted. Right. So be good at uh, sharing a vision of something others wanted to participate in and inviting them in to share their talents. And mm-hmm. um, I think that's the through line here. Yeah, it certainly is. And you know, I've, I've heard you speak and you also tell the story about, you know, getting to Yale and, and really uh, beginning to understand what drives community by uh, essentially hosting community community dinners there, uh, right? It's so just creating belonging, even in an academic culture where, uh, you know, strangers can uh, begin to uh, assemble for, for study. It was uh, probably another major influencer too. Would that also be in that, in that category? Well, when we got to graduate school, um, I was surprised about how isolated uh, individuals who had traveled so far to study there felt amongst each other. We were all distracted with a lot of tasks we had to handle, and some of us felt pressure of being judged on everything. And so it was a real wake-up call when I discovered that I felt really lonely amongst all these new people, and it turns out they did as well. And while you're right, they did turn out to be community dinners, they just started out as dinners, where we invited people who wanted to share a meal with us to share a meal with us, us in this case being me and my now wife, Sachita. And over the years, they grew into something far bigger and 
uh, life influencing than we ever anticipated. And that's one reason why I wrote about that chapter in my life in the book, The Art of Community. Yeah, The Art of Community, Seven Principles for Belonging is the, is the book that, uh, that I reference. I know you've uh, told me you're finishing up another, which we may speak about briefly uh, in the midst of the podcast. But in The Art of Community, you define community, and you've referenced it a little bit in your open around shared purpose and shared values. But you refer to it as uh, a group of individuals who share a mutual concern for one another's welfare. But you also interestingly refer to building communities in art, one in which uh, you say, you, know, you have to bring your own creativity and experience to the work. So can you help us understand why the building of community to you is, is actually an art form? Yeah, well, I use the term art to acknowledge that there is no formula. Uh, there's no magic structure or model that, that I can give you or that you're going to find. And it's going to work with wherever you are, with whomever you're with, doing whatever you'll do together. Which is simply to say when we step forward to bring people together, uh, there is an art, creativity has to come forward to be appropriate for the people we're working with, for the time that we're in, for the reasons we're coming together. And if there's some purpose uh, for that community, then for the purpose at hand. And they're going to look radically different. And so mm -hmm. my work is largely about sharing principles and what I call distinctions, so that those of us who are stepping forward to bring people together can see what's going on with some education. And we can name the things that we're seeing knowing that there is no formula we're going to implement and know that that's going to work. Yeah. And so the, the commonality between these different and unique mission driven, shared purpose driven communities are really these principles that, uh, that you talk about. And uh, we'll get to some of those as the conversation uh, unfolds. So then this whole concept then of, of belonging, in other words, there's a, a group of two or more individuals who have, have unified around uh, uh, some shared interest or, or intent. Um, you know, I come to that uh, group of two or more people and a sense of fit or match in the values and interests that they're expressing. And, and uh, those that I have could be in my neighborhood or church, you know, school, circle of friends, wherever. And this uh, connecting, this belonging to these individuals feels good. I mean, it's something humans crave. And, and we know is actually is we heard in the first episode with Dr. Robert Evans, uh, probably something that's innate to human beings. Um, and as the individual in this community, I feel really honored and valued for the authentic self that I'm bringing there. And then the community pours back into me and uh, together we grow, we grow forward uh, as, as an entity. Like, what do you think about when you think about belonging as you've studied communities? What, what, am, I, what am I missing uh, about what belonging really, really means? Well, I don't know if you're missing anything. A lot of smart people have written a lot about belonging, and many of them are psychologists, and they, mm -hmm. ha they use pretty fancy language, which I think is accurate and appropriate, but it's sometimes hard to translate to practitioners um, who are interested in parsing things down um, so finely. So for, at a practical level, when I'm thinking about what are we creating or what are we seeking when we create belonging, it's this idea that our participants believe, hopefully accurately, mm -hmm. that they're seen for who they are and accepted for who they are when they're amongst us. Mm -hmm. Usually that happens because there's a perception, hopefully accurately, that there's shared value mm -hmm. or shared values among the people who are gathering. Mm -hmm. Now, I've um, heard people talk about the fact that, especially in this time in America, which may be a record polarized time politically, Mm -hmm. that um, they can bring people together who don't share values and they can still create community. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe somebody knows something I don't know, but I don't think that's true. I think th that we can bring people together 
who don't share many values, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, there need to be some values or some value that inspires us to pilgrimage to a space and mm-hmm. spend time with other people and share ourselves in such a way that they can possibly know us. And then at some level we can believe hopefully accurately that they do know us, that we're not pretending to be something to get along and be polite. So when we are create, when we're bringing people together to hopefully increase belonging, the questions we can ask ourselves is what is the space mm-hmm. digital or physical that we're creating where mm-hmm. people can hopefully accurately perceive it safe enough that they can reveal who they are so that there's the possibility of a vulnerable conversation. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it'll happen, but if we don't have that space, digital or physical, it's not going to happen. Yeah, and one can imagine, you know, we're a two-campus community here of 1,150 kids across, you know, uh, 15 grade levels with uh, students moving through uh, identity formation that has them even questioning, uh, right, what their values are. Parents have assessed the value of this place to be aligned with their family's values, but some kids come and uh, find that to be the case, and, and others have a lot less uh, volition in, uh, in in determining that. So, that's really some of the challenges I think schools like ours, uh, all schools, communities face in, in, uh, in building a deep and rich sense of vulnerability uh, and, and community like, like you described. And I guess that leads me to this question, you know, around the, it's sort of this chicken and egg question, right? I explored it with Dr. Evans somewhat, this, this idea of like, what comes first? Me understanding who I am so that I can better ascertain what community to plug into? Or is it that I explore multiple communities and through that exploration, uh, get a better sense of my self-identity? Do you see it as a binary or is it actually not so clearly that black and white? Oh, I definitely don't see this black and white. Yeah. And I like to think that those of us who are maturing are an ongoing process. Right. About who we are, who find understanding who we are and, and then becoming something even more mature. Mm-hmm. I'd be really embarrassed if I declared victory and maturity at this age and then, decided, well, that's, that's that. I just get to yeah. find people like me the way I am. Right. And then of course, I think the same is true about the people we're meeting is they're maturing and their our interests change, our priorities change, our health changes. And so I don't think there's a magical community for us to find that we just plug into and that's the right one. And I don't think we're magical people that people find us and we're just the right people for them. Uh, so it's an ongoing process. And you know, we live, you may already know this, but I don't know if listeners know this, research indicates that we may be living in the loneliest time mm-hmm. of American history. I used to say loneliest generation, but that's misleading because uh, we know several generations that are alive today, baby boomers, Xers, millennials, have uh, what seem to be record-breaking loneliness and isolation. Yeah, you report in your book, one in five Americans report that they, that they are lonely. Uh, is one of the statistics that you give in, in the, in the uh, Arctic community. Yeah, there are many studies about how much Americans are lonely and how that reflects in their life. And there are different numbers associated with responses. Uh, the trend is that way more people are lonely than most of us think about when we're out in the world. And the trend has been getting worse. And this didn't happen by accident. There are trends in our culture that have led us to this place. And the unfortunate thing is those trends may be growing bigger. Yeah. So unfortunately, I'm pessimistic about where our country is going. Mm-hmm. And this may be the whole world, but I know the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am optimistic that when those of us want to invest in bringing people together and connect them more, that we can do that once we learn how to do that better and just take some risk in doing that. 
I do think of uh, something that, that good schools do and, and uh, a parish, I would say, is in that category for sure, is that it offers some very traditional um, uh, elements and manifestations of our value. We're an Episcopal school. We have daily chapel. We have a sacred space where we gather. We have 20 different religious faiths that are part of our 1,150 students. They're uh, honored here, even in uh, the midst of uh, that commitment to, uh, to, a, to a daily communal gathering. But at the same time, you know, we're also rich with what I call micro communities, right? In dance and in art and in uh, athletics and in different subject areas. And so I do think that students who are on this journey of, of uh, self-exploration, one that I agree with you never ends, I do feel there's, there are numerous micro communities that they actually do explore and experiment with over the course of their time at Parish that are very um, defined, very assistive in their defining of self. So it's kind of an interesting thing that a good school can do in terms of having rootedness and ritual that you talk about in your book, but also these micro communities uh, that really allow exploration and definition of self and, and um, you know, finding a place to plug into and belong. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I'm glad you brought up the, the topic of what you're calling micro communities. One of the myths that I run into when I talk about bringing people together when I speak is this idea that success is about get, filling big rooms, maybe even big buildings full of many people, and that's a reflection of a successful community. <laughs> and indeed, um, I have spoken with um, leaders that have filled up uh, convention halls and even stadiums full of people. But what we need to understand when we're bringing people together is it's not the experience, or it's overwhelmingly not the experience in a large room with lots of people that leads us to understand that we belong and that we're connected. Mm-hmm. But overwhelming, it's the experiences in what we call in our forthcoming book, intimate experiences mm-hmm. that lead us to walk away believing, hopefully accurately, that we're connected and seen and understood by other people. Right. And these happen in what we call, just for the purposes of naming it, a campfire experience, which happens mm-hmm. in a campfire space. And we call it a campfire uh, experience because at a campfire, we have proximity to other people. Mm-hmm. We have the conditions that allow for and the permission to have what could be a vulnerable conversation. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that a vulnerable conversation happens whenever there's a campfire space where we have proximity, conditions, and permission. But we, when we're bringing people together, and that can be students or faculty or parents, right. if we notice, well, gee, there's no time where they're near each other, where they have permission to talk, and we've made the room quiet enough and we've right. made the room bright enough and we've made it not a transitional time, i.e. the conditions are right, where they can have a possibly vulnerable conversation, well, then they're not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And if we only invite parents to galas or we only invite them to come to rallies or we only invite them to come to lectures with smart people where they don't have the permission to talk because they're supposed to be listening to somebody or maybe an auctioner at a gala, Mm -hmm. guess what? Those don't happen. Mm. And so we get to look, well, where are we giving our participants an opportunity to have that intimate experience to possibly have that vulnerable conversation? So when they leave that big event, that campfire experience will let them feel connected. Yeah, it's a fascinating point. I know your next book focuses on organizations and and Parish is a large organization, a couple thousand people when you throw, you know, 230 Mm -hmm. employees and, Mm -hmm. you know, 1150 kids and all of their families. And so, you know, the corporations that you're going to be speaking to through the lens of, of this concept of belonging, I'm sure are 
really realizing this point I hope that you're making about these campfire experiences or mine about micro communities you know we we have to find smaller places within even a still small community of parish smaller uh, places in uh, drill teams and drum lines and, and athletic teams and, and uh, classroom advisories and uh, what have you where where uh, students can find places to belong vulnerable conversations as you refer to frequent in proximity where their voice is heard so those are really really insightful but this whole like uh, Mary of the individual versus the the group I think is really fascinating to me as you reference kind of the present day and age and some of the complications and complexities of it you know, we at Parish are pursuing uh, elements of, of very personalized learning through uh, mastery and competency-based education. Uh, I um, um, am a real proponent uh, and, and off-reader of Todd Rose and End of Average and Dark Horse, David Epstein's recent book, Range, are all really talking to us about uh, individual pathways and journeys uh, of development. And Rose, in fact, you know, says that the age of standardization is giving way to the dawning of the age of personalization. So, you know, this is a real conundrum for those of us that manage communities and want to talk about belonging and, and wholeness and shared values and shared purposes as we juxtapose that against uh, an increasingly personalized world. So what, what, are you, what are you suggesting to those of us that want to maintain communities of belonging in a world that is becoming increasingly personalized in almost everything that we're able to do uh, as a result of technology. Well, well that's, you, know, you think you've referenced a bunch of thinking that I'm not uh, familiar enough with to speak mm -hmm. um, with integrity. Mm -hmm. um, and what I do know about personalization, about how we're receiving media that, uh, is is increasingly different from people around us so we don't have those shared touch points and maybe even understanding of the world um at the end of the day people come together because they're typically invited the people that you feel closest with and my guess is the students who um, are connecting the most and even the parents who are connecting the most mm -hmm. uh, in your community my guess is they received invitations and no matter how isolated we may become by marketers or media or maybe even our own um, consumptive choices, yes, uh, invitations can pierce through that and give us an opportunity to connect with others that wouldn't come if we just hide behind that, that media consumption. And so one of the things we can look at when we're thinking about bringing people together either more or more powerfully is who are we inviting? Mm -hmm. When are we inviting? What are we inviting them to and how are we inviting them? And I like to tell the story about a friend of mine who moved to the Bay Area. She moved to San Francisco neighborhood, I believe Potrero Hill, and she didn't have many friends. And she said, she told me that she uh, had a, or she created a brunch mm -hmm. and nobody came. And so she asked me, I'm the community expert she knows, uh, why didn't anybody come to my brunch? And of course, I don't know the answer. Maybe she's a terrible person. They don't want to hang out with her. You know, I don't know. But I asked the first question and that was, um, well, how many people did you invite? And there was a long pause. And then she said, well, I posted on Facebook. Mm. Well, she invited nobody and nobody came. Mm -hmm. She did make a posting, but that was an invitation. Mm. My guess is that she invited 30 people. Probably 30 people wouldn't show up, but above zero would show up. Mm -hmm. And she was skipping the invitation mm. to, and trying to connect with people who live around her. Wow. 
So uh, that's not a silver bullet in how we bring people together, but we can acknowledge no matter how isolated we may be becoming for a number of factors, we have the power of invitation. And most of us like getting invitations, even if we don't want to accept any given invitation or our lives are structured that we're so busy doing what we got to do, we can't accept them. We like the invitation. And the invitation alone tells us somebody wants to connect with us and we know somebody who has the power to bring people together. And that has really powerful implications. I just gave my opening keynote to the faculty a week or so ago and said belonging begins with us. Like that's a choice that we make to create a culture of belonging here. And, and your very point about offering an invitation, we think about a teacher and a learner, a learner who may learn differently, a, a learner who may be a bit disengaged or more passive than the teacher would like. You know, the teacher has that choice to, to, uh, to, to turn that student off or to really make an invitation uh, to, to, to bring that, that student in. Just, just in one example of creating a classroom of belonging within a broader school community of belonging. So I love that. And you reference those psychologists that you talked about uh, earlier, you know, and, and in your book, you talk about uh, Baumeister and, and Leary and this notion of frequent interactions and persistent caring. Then I really like that too, when you talk about, uh, you know, one thing that you can't get from your personalized app on your phone uh, is that notion of you can get the frequent interactions, but you can't get that notion of persistent caring, mm-hmm. right? And so how do you, um, as, a, as a community like Parish, really um, really lean hard uh, into how we communicate uh, and express care for, uh, as you say, those constituents that we invite in here. So uh, it's, a, it's fascinating. And I, I do intend to talk with uh, students on the podcast this year about this, this idea of uh, loneliness and quote unquote connectedness and belonging in the age of technology, you know, just simply isn't measured by friends and, and, and shares and likes uh, in the world of social media. And I think that's a topic that they are really wrestling with mm-hmm. um, as they try to figure out what it really feels like to be truly plugged in somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know? So let's finish talking a little bit and just sort of high level around these seven principles because um, anyone who's listening, you know, a lot of our parents and, and other educators who, pl- who, who, who uh, you know, uh, were part of our 3,000 uh, downloads last year in our second season, which we're really excited about, um, would, I think, find interest in these principles. And uh, you've referenced a couple of them, a boundary principle, the initiation principle, rituals principle, the temple principle, stories principle, the symbols principle, and the inner rings principle, all these that you've drawn from uh, you know, your research into uh, ancient spiritual traditions. I'm most interested in the boundary principle because I think it applies to independent schools like Parish best. You know, these are tuition-based institutions with selective admissions processes. We have some very distinct boundaries or barriers that um, families and students have to navigate once they um, are admitted into a community uh, like ours. So when you talk about how to ensure that, you know, a community is uh, is really a place where one can find belonging. You know what what do you what what do you have to say about this boundary principle and and the potential barriers that it poses at a place like Yale at a place that's a tuition bearing institution um, uh, like Parish? Well, let me clarify that in the context of talking about community and boundaries, uh, yeah. the boundary is not there to. Uh, celebrate who's inside and then ignore and or dismiss everybody on the outside. Uh, There are organizations that do use boundaries that way. Um, Typically when we find them, we have a certain reaction to them. (laughs) Uh, And that is not the prescription here. Yeah. Context. The boundary is simply 
a tool that we use that helps us keep the inside safe. So uh, when I come to your school and you invite me to sit down with teachers to talk about anything pertaining to enriching children, yeah, I'm an outsider. And there are things that they're not going to talk about with me as not a professional educator and as not a person who understands the history of that school and who does not have a committed relationship professionally or otherwise, anybody in the room, that mm-hmm. conversation is going to be different with me in the room than with me outside the room. Right. And that highlights the importance of, for us, for a group of teachers to have a strong community that safe on the inside where they can say things that will be understood in context, that we can understand that a boundary is important for certain conversations. But just because I'm not in a boundary of teachers at the school doesn't mean that they're not nice to me, can't welcome me to other events. And so the boundary is something that we look to that we can invite people with the appropriate shared values mm-hmm. across the boundary through what we call a gate. Mm-hmm. And we only call it a gate because if you're in leadership role and you don't know where the gates are, mm-hmm. <laughs> then it's very hard for people to come through the gate to be part of your community. Yeah. And then you can notice, are there gatekeepers, people who are keeping the right people coming through the gate, but also helping the right people through the gate. So yeah. that there just isn't a bunch of shoulder shrugging and we don't know why people aren't joining us or we don't know why the wrong people are joining us or we don't know why we can't get the right people to join us. Yeah. So the boundary just helps us, the boundary distinction helps us understand um, one of the functions that are going on that we can invest in if that needs investing. And then the other thing that is important is that when someone crosses the boundary in a really strong community, there is an understanding that everybody on the inside is recognized people know our name. Mm-hmm. We're not just a number. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you don't have a boundary, well, we can't know the name of everybody in the world or everybody who visits. Right. And then when we have a boundary, we can also distinguish, well, who's visiting? And maybe I'm a visitor if I'm invited for a day or a week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's okay to have a visitor level and then another more intimate level for people who are committed to participating in those relationships with those shared values. And if there is a shared purpose, uh, far more than just the visitors. Yeah, that's fascinating. And maybe tied a little bit then more to some, some other elements of, of your ritual and sacred space, you know, as, as a, as a school like ours, folks that come to us from different religious backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds. Uh, I wonder sometimes if our, if our uh, community of insiders who, who've been inside the inner rings for a long time are even aware of some of the boundaries that we uh, that and barriers that we we may set up unintentionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned galas, or you mentioned expes- expensive proms or homecomings for older kids. Uh, you know, parties at uh, certain geographic locations for for classes in the community. That you know, for an outsider coming in, uh, we don't set up the gates for those, or even recognize that uh, that there's a boundary uh, that there's a boundary there. So I think a lot of our work around building communities of belonging in, in, in independent schools is this idea is like, yeah, we've extended you an invitation. We're nominally very happy to, to have you here and even to get to know your name. But we are um, blind to the fact that some of the way that our place operates uh, socioeconomically and culturally um, are um, kind of barriers that are invisible fences to us, but are really noticeable to you as an outsider stepping into our community that's more a reflection than a question uh, that was really provoked by listening to you, you speak a couple of years ago as I thought about 
you know, how to build a truly close, inclusive parish, not just a welcoming one, because there's a difference, right? Absolutely. And I think that's a fantastic use of this distinction boundary that when you can recognize the boundary, then you can notice what are the gates, where are the gates, and who's inviting people through the gates. And if your boundary is too high, well, that's going to create a problem for what you're, your, the vision of what you're trying to create. Um, it's very common. I, it's come up more than once now in my work where I've heard from administrators of independent schools that they want to involve families that are new to the school and on scholarship to participate with the parents. Mm-hmm. And I remember having at least one conversation where it turned out the big event that they invite these parents to is a gala with an auction where they watch far, far, far wealthier families bid tens of thousands of dollars yes. for luxury items. Yes. Well, I don't know anybody who is trying to participate in a new community that thinks that's going to make them more connected to other parents. Right. And yet they were mystified on why these families were not more involved and more connected. And so just a little bit of reflection can reveal what opportunity is there to look at who are we inviting? How are we inviting? How often are we inviting? And what are we inviting them to? You shift that and you may shift the whole community. Yeah, I think that's a great insight. And, and you know, I, I would say that um, I'm proud of how um, uh, uh, attentive and aware uh, our community of, of especially school and board leaders have become to really looking for those invisible barriers um, in our community so that when people get here over time, you know, they can understand how to navigate the, the bridge from outsider to insider and, uh, you know, find those find those places of deep connection uh, here where they can, you know, d- demonstrate their demonstrate who they are and be honored for that individual that shows up here uh, each and every day. So I sure appreciate your your wisdom on this topic and, and commend Charles Vogel's work to those of you that are leading uh, nonprofit organizations, profit corporations, where, uh, again, you're trying to uh, unite people uh, around shared purpose and values and, and create communities of belonging. Charles, thanks. Um, thanks so much for taking some time with us today. I'm so excited to share this time with you. Thanks, Charles. Thank you for listening to this edition of the From My Angle podcast. Please share it with friends and colleagues in your network. In our next episode, I get to visit with one of my heroes in the world of educational innovation and leadership, Dr. Paul LeBlanc the president of Southern New Hampshire University. In the last 15 years, Dr. LeBanc has led a remarkable transformation at SNHU and positioned it at the forefront of creative thinking about the future of higher education. We will explore the identity of being an innovator, both as a leader and institution, as well as what belonging looks like as institutions move to feature more personalized learning platforms. I know you will be interested to hear from Dr. LeBlanc.